been great to be with you these last two weeks. I hope after today's message you will feel <laughs> you will feel the same because because uh, am I yeah sorry about that. Uh, today is one of the principles that um, I was going to say I am learning. I'm not even sure if I've. I've scratched the surface. But in this <clears throat> last section of Philippians chapter 4, and I'll read some of the verses, Paul tells us something very, very um, important about contentment. He says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord. This is Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Whenever you put contentment and money together, we have a problem, right? Especially in America. There are uh, a number of TV shows that I've caught glimpses of, uh, and one writer, Jeff Cook, in his book Seven, The Seven Deadly Sins, uh, he's talking about greed. He discusses some of these lifestyles of the rich and famous, was one of the shows. Uh, then they had some ripoffs from that. M MTV had Cribs, MTV's Cribs. Uh, cribs. I have a crib, at, two cribs at my house now because my daughter's back with her grandchild. But that's not the crib they're talking about, okay? VH1 had the fabulous life of whoever they were celebrating. Even ESPN Sports has one online, or they used to. And this is what Jeff Cook says. He says, my favorite thing about these shows devoted to pretentious mansions comes near the end. When the camera pulls back for the aerial shot, 
From above, you don't see majestic foyers or rooms with eight PlayStations. You don't see unused designer cooktops or pools with mosaic self-portraits at the bottom. Man, I, that's one thing I've dreamed about, is walking into my pool with my face just <laughs> in the tiles. Boy, that would be a blessing for only me. Uh, what you notice are huge fences, lots of palm trees. The homes no longer look like homes, they look like drug lord compounds. On these shows, the rich and famous build huge, and he calls them bubbles, in which to live. Bubbles that shield out the rest of the world. Bubbles that keep them safe. Bubbles that, while beautiful, are really just extravagant fortresses minus the moat. Now, you know, some, some of these people, because they're so rich, they need uh, to be separated. They need to be in a bubble. I remember when George Harrison, some guy, um, uh, for those of you who are younger, he was one of the Beatles. All right, the Beatles. Okay, who's, who's that? Uh, somebody broke in, tried to stab him. His wife actually had to fight the, the guy off, uh, and fortunately, no one was hurt. But, uh, you know, famous people, unfortunately, do need the weird protection. But most of us, we don't think of ourselves as living in a bubble. But, well, let me let you hear from Jeff and see if you agree. He says, in fact... The real middle-class bubble is, isn't the home, it's the automobile. Our cars get us from home to work with a barricade of steel and safety glasses, glass protecting us. Cars let us get dry cleaning, lattes, mail, meals, without leaving a safe space, even food. America is a country of roads, and these roads are populated with car-shaped bubbles announcing our identity to the outside world. Outdoorsy, what car is that? Somebody got a Jeep recently, I think. Yes, yellow one, if I'm correct, all right? Outdoorsy, uh, refined. Those of you who are refined, okay. My brother-in-law just bought, <laughs> he's a pastor, I, I should not be saying this. Right. <laughs> He's a pastor in uh, Livingston, the Crossing Church. And he bought the car of his dreams. It's the Chrysler 300, white. All right? The car of his... Why don't you buy a Beamer? The car of his dreams, the Chrysler 300. And I was looking on, on the web yesterday, actually, for cars for senior citizens. Now, I'm 66, so I, I looked at those cars to see, you know, what should I buy? Uh, and his car, under the section, those who are 80, <laughs> the Chrysler 300. I can't wait to share that blessing with him. Oh, boy. Anyway, sorry, I got outdoorsy, refined, muscular, posh, environmentally conscious, conscious, those Tesla. Ugh. Anyway, and if the brand and style don't say enough, there's plenty of room on the back for bumper stickers. You know, maybe he's uh, pushing it a little bit, but all of us have these bubbles that we live in, financial bubbles. Our banking, entertainment, everything can be done from your phone. It's amazing. Solitude. Is there anything there? And he says, 
Finally, it seems that everything I purchase and enjoy has been fashioned so that I can avoid other people. We must take that bubble and ask ourselves the question, are we in a bubble and do we mistake that for contentment? Paul says here in Philippians chapter 4 that in whatever situation I am, I have learned to be content. Obviously, Paul is saying that he was not always a content person. But he's saying that through life, through what God has brought into his life, he's learned contentment. He has been low emotionally. emotionally. He has been low financially. He has been high emotionally. He has been high financially. And yet, to feel good because you're financially well off, and to feel bad because you're not financially well off, That's not gospel. Now that's a hard truth for us who basically most of us have been pretty content, quote unquote. Right? But Paul is rejoicing. Now, notice the context here. He's talking about the Philippians giving to him. Right? In verse 14 he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. In other words, the Philippians gave money, money, green, or whatever it was back then, to him for his ministry. He didn't ask for it. He wasn't advertising for it. They, out of the generosity of their heart, gave. And if you read 2 Corinthians, you find the Macedonians did the same thing. By the grace of God, even out of their poverty, Paul says, they gave. They were able to give to him. And he appreciated it. The word there in the Philippians giving, it's blossomed into activity. Have you ever been desired to give? I know when I go to Christian concerts and the Compassion commercial comes on, it's like, uh, get the checkbook out. No, don't get the checkbook out. Get the, you feel like I got, you know, I don't know how many kids we sponsor. I think it's 30,000. No, it's not that many. But, you know, you, you just feel compelled. And, it, by the way, if you don't sponsor a kid from Compassion, you should look into it. They are financially viable very upfront, straight. They do a great ministry. I didn't even mean to do a commercial for Compassion, but I do have flyers in the back. No, I'm only kidding. All right? But it blossomed into activity. They realized that the kingdom was moving forward. They wanted to be in on it. They were investing in heaven. That's the attitude they had. And Paul was praising God that they had that kind of attitude. He wasn't so much praising God that he got the money, although that was a benefit. He was praising God for the bigger picture of what they were getting involved in. You know, when we give to missionaries, do we get the bigger picture of the gospel going forth? Whatever mission field they are in, we are investing in a soil, in a place where God is at work. Some of the places the the ground is rock hard. But we invest there. 
Because we know God can give increase. Some of the places are ready for fruit. We invest there because God's going to give the increase. We see stuff that we need to do in our churches. We invest there. And, you know, I have to say this because a couple of years ago, I remember preaching on a similar topic. And I was talking about giving at the church. And a brother who had been coming to the chapel, I mean, like for decades, and I brought up the idea of tithing, and how people don't plan their finances to give to the Lord. In other words, they just kind of come in, and, you know, how crazy that would be, they kind of give on a whim. It's like, oh, I have, uh, let's see, what do I have in my wallet today? Uh, 20, no, I can't give that. That's way too big. And he said, man, when I come on a Sunday, I just kind of give at a whim. You, you mean, you check your budget? I looked at him and I said, yes. It's kind of like, duh. But we take it for granted. All right? I was talking about tithing in that message, and I wasn't saying, listen, I'm not like 10%, you got to give 10%, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's not where I'm going, coming from. But let me give you a, just a sidebar. If you do not look at your money as God's money and that he wants you to give it to him, I mean, it's, there's a blessing in it. Now, it's not a blessing like if he's, you give him 10, he's going to give you 20. All right? It's a totally different thing. Here's the blessing. The blessing is, is that something that you want to hang on to, hook, line, and sinker, you are freeing. And my wife and I, when we came to Christ before we were married, and then when we got married, we decided we're going to have it, you know, you can do it however you want these days, Joint bank account, and what are we going to do? Are we gonna, what are, where are we going to start giving to the Lord? We said, okay, we're going to start with 10%. Now, that's not a lot of money, 10%. Now, you get into this whole, whoa, is it 10% net or 10% gross? What do you do? Okay, well, I'm not sure. Oh, no, I feel guilty now. Let's just do gross and not worry about it because God's not going to bless if you give net. You see, now you start getting legalistic and it gets crazy. But the point is, you, you have to aim at something. Listen, I don't care how somebody went on a honeymoon and they came back. Dude! And do that. That's wonderful. Okay, so... All right, so maybe you do this already. Uh, a piece of advice. If you don't, go home, look at your budget, and decide what you're going to give for God. And do it. Do it. No matter what. Some people say, well, you know, some months I don't have enough money. And, uh, you know, I, I, all I could say is God provided at every turn. There are times when I was teaching at Northeastern Bible College where I did not get a paycheck. I painted in the summer. It paid the bills. God provided. God will provide. You see, giving is something that shows our faith, the fiber of it. Man, I'm coming, we don't talk about money in the brethren uh, thing, so I might not get asked back, so let me give it to you really strong. If you don't give to this work, you have a spiritual problem. 
God expects it. Do you know the tithe was the minimum? They actually gave another 10% for the, for the, for the temple tax. We're talking 20%. Man, it sounds like socialism here. That was a joke. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying. Give generously. So, Paul is saying this, that I have learned to be content in whatever situation that I'm in, whether abounding, and he's talking about money, or whether suffering need. Now, this could also be emotional. This could also be applied to spiritual. This could also be applied to struggles with uh, your own finances. It could also be applied to illness. But primarily, in the context, Paul is talking about money. And when he says that you can, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he's saying that whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, Christ will move me through. I complain if Costco doesn't have the right size tissue boxes. It's amazing how soft we are. Soft I am. I'm sorry, let me just go. You guys ever watch uh, the um, three-part movie on the president, the third president, Adams? Okay? And he, uh, at one point, I think it's in the second series, where he goes to France. He's uh, an ambassador before he's, he's uh, president. Oh, and the, the trip on the boat, he ta- they talk about it. It's terrible. But his 16-year-old son went with him. And they needed an ambassador in northern Africa. And he sent his 16-year-old son to be the ambassador in northern Africa, by himself. And then he left his wife to take care of everything in Massachusetts, summer, winter, summer, winter. What? I'd move somewhere else. People who sacrifice, right? You see, there's a bigger cause in their minds there's a bigger picture in their minds and for us our picture and because our world kind of puts us in this realm our picture often and we think it goes beyond but often doesn't go far enough our picture must be christ's kingdom that we are bringing it as we preach the gospel as we encourage one another as we give money and that's the big picture and we should look Is it strategic? Is it right? Are we doing it well? Some of you, I know, you're sitting there maybe saying, well, you know, I don't know what to give to. I'm not sure. Like, how do I know that? Christianity Today, about three years ago, had a fantastic article on some of the best places, things to give. Because, you know, what do they need? What, you know, we throw money at problems. Does that really help the situation? I forget what state we have that highway to nowhere. It just ended. You paid for that. I paid for that. That's why with government, blah, you know, we're going wacky. But the article was great. Getting number one, 10 best strategies. I won't go through all of them. Get clean water to rural villages. 
You know missionaries. You know uh, groups that are doing that, that are doing it responsibly. Getting clean water to rural villages. Fund deworming treatments for children. I mean, these are just like, we take all of this for granted. Provide mosquito nets. Malaria. Cost. Disease. Death. Sponsor a child. Oh, that's my commercial. Uh, Give wood-burning stoves. Give a microfinance loan. Fund reparative surgeries. Donate a farm animal. Okay, and on and on. Give a kid a laptop. I mean, these are just very practical things that we kind of take for granted that, you know, most of the world can't even appreciate these things. God wants us, and we get behind missionaries who are doing those kinds of things. That's just a start. I wonder if we know. I wonder sometimes if I know and am doing the job I need to do. So, Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am in. Money wasn't the most important thing for him. It was the kingdom of God. And when he uses that word contentment, he's borrowing it from the Stoic philosophy. Now, here's what's you got to track with me on this one because it's important. But the Stoics were, you know, stiff upper lip, kind of a pessimistic view of the world. And so you did it by willpower. And you pushed yourself into these troublesome situations. And when you were in them, you just grin and bore it. And through that, you became, they said, content. You learned contentment. Now what Paul says here is that the same word... But here's the spin he gives to it. And actually, let me go back one one step. What the Stoics believed, and there's the phrase, is that this will enable you to resist the shock of circumstances. So if you put yourself in the fray, you're in the fray, and you apply willpower, the stiff upper lip, you will be able to resist the shock of circumstances as life goes on. Stoic. It's amazing how many Christians think the Holy Spirit is Stoicism. But it's not. But Paul uses the same word. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there are, that's a bad characteristic to have. It's a good one. But what Paul is saying here is that, listen, I've learned a sufficiency... I've learned an ability to move through difficult situations and to resist the shock of circumstance by trusting in Christ. He is the one who is sufficient. That's why he says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And the word he uses is, I have been initiated into this, learned, contentment you ever been in an initiation i haven't fortunately uh but i've heard some of them are like kind of bizarre some of them get very very dangerous but the point is is that once you're initiated in you become part of that group you're in it 
okay? Some initiations are spoken and clear. Some initiations are kind of like nobody's even told you the rules, but you know it's there, okay? You hear musicians, they talk about this. They'll say, you know, that guy didn't put in his time, right? Depending on what they're playing, how they're playing, that kind of thing. There's kind of this unspoken initiation. Paul is saying, I have been initiated. I have gone through ups and downs. Remember 2 Corinthians? I wasn't sure what forward was. I wasn't sure if I was going to live past the next situation. I continued to preach the gospel. Sometimes I felt hopeless. Sometimes I felt like I was going to lose my life. But God enabled me to do this, to trust in Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. The only one, the only one who was able to teach the way he taught and speak the way he did and heal the people that he healed and reapply the law of the Old Testament. Do you realize how big that is? And then take the sins, your sins and my sins, upon himself, die, hopeless, it's over. It's over, right? And he rises from the dead. Jesus. Paul said, you know, my stiff upper lip will never take the stuff of life. But when I trust in Christ, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Well, let me be clear. I'll never be an NBA basketball player. All right? I have a friend who's a really good basketball player. Yeah, you got it, man. And uh, he was jumping. Like, he was bouncing the ball and jumping. And uh, he gave it to me, and I bounced, and I did a jump shot. And, you know, my jump shot, like, I left the ground around, like, around four inches. He started laughing. Like, he was, like, laughing. I said, what are you laughing at? He goes, oh, good jump shot. You really jump high. I will never. So Paul is not saying, you know, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You're right. I'm going to become an NBA, NBA basketball player. If I ever said that, uh, to an elder, this is what my life is. If the elder is worth the salt, they should sit that guy or girl down and say, uh, let's get real here. Jesus is not going to help you do that. <laughs> All right? Sorry to be so blunt. You follow what I'm, what I'm getting at. But what Paul is saying is that when we are going through difficulties in our life, however big or however small, we can do all things through Him who strengthens us. You see, this idea of contentment enables us to resist the shock of circumstance because our contentment is in Christ. What He's done, who He is. And so Paul always, whenever the New Testament writers take these truths and move some of the things that were secular into our language, or I should say Christian language, it's always a third way. It's a gospel way. It's a resurrection way. So, boy, I probably spent time on that passage to not get into the stuff where I think you're going to not ask me to come back again. But, Let's, let's go to James, because Paul is talking about contentment in the context of money. 
And the two books that I know that really hit on financial stuff and, and what we need, well, actually three books, what we need to do is um, found in James. So I'd like you to turn to James chapter 4. But there are, there are a lot of places in the Bible. You, if you do a little word study about money or gain, if you were to try to understand, you know, how do I use my money well? For those of you who are not going to be coming back, and one of, one of the responsibilities I had was to take care of uh, the grants that we got from the government. And so we got a small grant from uh, the federal government, and uh, we were ha had to report how we used the money. And so I went into the executive director and said, all right, so I'm going to put the report. So how did we use this $25,000? It says that we we're supposed to use it for dance, uh, building, and this. And he said, well, we didn't really use it for that. So just make something up. <laughs> Thank you and goodbye. So, right, this was the first year. First year. So what do I do with that? Okay, because I know now those of you who are involved in stuff like this, you know, once you uh, do something to turn the hand of the feds away, uh, you may not get more money, at least in the next year or two years. And this is a school that is heavily funded by outside giving. That would have been huge. So, because I'm righteous, I say I'm not going to, so I began to talk to him, well, you know, can't we, well, my conscience, it was tough. It was tough, a couple of nights, how am I going to do this report? This is terrible. Struggling with this, I want to do my job honestly and for the Lord, but I also want to do it uh, in a way that doesn't uh, jeopardize the school. I'll tell you later what happened. Come to lunchtime and I'll tell you what I did. Woohoo! All right? God's law is not compromised and people are not harmed. Your spiritual life is not harmed. Your job should not harm your spiritual life. 3 John 2. Proverbs 21.20 The money you make, you should save it. Save it. Oh, I feel good about that. Save it. And the third thing in Proverbs 11.24 and 25 Give it generously. Give it generously. Paul says each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Somebody who delights to give. You know, uh, Jim Gaffigan is one of my, me and my wife's favorite comedians, and we like really laugh when he does some jokes. Uh, he's on the clean side, so, you know, I can recommend him. We are, he's hilarious. I'll start crying sometimes in the stuff that he does, right? I wish I could imitate it, but I can't. Hilarious. That's what Paul is saying. Give hilariously. The, the guy or woman that you like who is stand up and really cracks you up, Paul's saying, that's the way you should be with your money. <laughs> yeah, take it. Notice I didn't open my wallet. <laughs> this kind of thing is just so, so important. All right. So, oh, it's 12 o'clock.
All right, so let me just last, last thing. Last thing. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you the harshest, the harshest, because um, I know you guys can take it, the harshest indictment uh, that James gives. There's a problem in the Jerusalem church that James is addressing. He talks about money and the rich all the time throughout the book. And they were, fav- they were playing favorites. You know, if you were poor, you sat somewhere else. If you were rich, you sat near the front. And so all of these things are going on in this church. Can you believe that? This is the Jerusalem church. This is the first church. I mean, you're talking about the first church of whatever. This is the first church. Okay, right there in Jerusalem. And listen to what James says. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's talking about judgment. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You know, if you're a preacher, you always at some day wanted to preach on this mess, on this passage. It just gives you the ability to go, ah! But then I start to say, wait, I'm rich. We are rich. Listen, think about the rest of the world. If you lined up everybody on the planet, every nationality, every nation, from starting from the open doors there, all the way back it would go down. You know where we would as far as finances be in that line? At the head. At the beginning. That's how good we have it. And so James is just trying to, you know, shake people into reality here. He's saying, like, look, we just keep looking at money and assets and how it's going to look and build stuff up and be secure. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Oh, when I read this, I say to myself as a baby boomer, and all the complaining that I have done as an individual year in and year out and worrying if I'm going to be able to retire, which has all been like a joke. Every time I've worried, I wish I had those moments back. I could have lived a whole year with a different mindset. We live in a bubble, people. You are in a bubble. I am in a bubble in America. Do you know how much money we spend? I said I was going to stop, didn't I? I better stop while I'm ahead. Do you know how much money we spend on our pets a year in America? $41 billion. What we take to the vet and spend $5,000 on for operations, 
They're eating on the other side of the planet. We are in a bubble. So how do we get out of the bubble? What James is saying, and we'll talk more about it, although I won't be screaming downstairs, at least I hope so. Get what's primary and get the picture. God wants us to give generously. Generously. I start to think, you know, I gotta save this up for my kids. I gotta, when I die, I gotta give, my, give it to my kids. And the thought hit me, it's like, they're not gonna use it well. Why, <laughs> Why should I save it for them? Give it to a mission board. Give it to somebody else. Give it to a ministry. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, like, write your kids out of your will. But what I am saying is that, hey, come on. Think about it. You'll die. They'll take the money. And what will they do? They'll buy a car. And a, a better one that they couldn't buy before. No. Our vision must be bigger. It's the kingdom of God. It's Christ and His glory. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want us to be poor. He's not saying that you should value poor. But He's also not saying that you should go for riches. What He's saying is that you should eliminate the whole idea of status completely from your minds. And when that happens, you will be, I will be content.